Hello, you lovely lot. I wanted to take a moment to share an exciting announcement with you all. I will be doing a live show for Happy Mum, Happy Baby at the podcast show in London on the 22nd of May. This will be a live episode of this very podcast featuring me and a very special soon-to-be-announced guest. Get ready for a candid conversation, unfiltered truths, laughs, invaluable non-judgmental advice and lived experiences. Dive into the complexities of parenting while juggling work, relationships and personal growth and we'll be talking beyond the baby years. As well as the live episode, the show will also include a Q&A with both me and my guest. Tickets go on sale this Friday the 26th of April at 10am, but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum, Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday the 24th of April at 10am. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event, please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to another episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest is an author. She's a long-time columnist for The Times. She's an all-round amazing egg. She's got two teenage daughters. It is Kat LaMurray. Yay, Is long time even a thing? Feels like long time. Yeah, I think that's what it says in my contract. Since you were 15. Yeah, 15, I know. At the time, I just faxed them because it was the time where they had faxes. Wow. A (laughs) column and said, would you like me to be a columnist for you? And they rang me back 10 minutes later and went, yes, and gave me a column. And at the time, I thought that was completely normal. It actually took me about 10 years when I was telling someone how I got a job at the time to go, you know, that doesn't normally happen. (laughs) That's not how you get a job at the Times. But I didn't know. I was a feral child in Wolverhampton in a council house just going, got nothing to lose, why not just fax the times and ask them for a job? Your friends must have been like, what? I love that you think I had friends. There's (laughs) there's one reason why you would want to be a columnist for the times and have time to write columns for the times at the age of 15. It's because I had no friends at all. I had a dog called Saffron who who was a dear friend of mine and I had seven siblings if you've got seven siblings, you kind of don't really need friends. You just... I feel like that about growing up, though. I yes. feel like if I had my brother and my sister, I was fine. you got your crew, exactly. Mm. I mean, they're the best crew to hang out with because however horrible you are to them and however horrible they are to you, you're together forever, you know that. So mm. it allows you to do the darkest and most delicious jokes because it's all ultimately bags in no returns because you've all got the same DNA. Bags in no returns. <laughs> however you snag off your sibling, you have exactly the same faults in your DNA. So it, it's a joke on you as well as on them. Don't you feel like you learn so much though being part of a big family? Like in terms of relationships and stuff. I mean, what I primarily learned is how to eat very quickly because when there's like <laughs> 10 people around a table and you've got your two sausages on the plate, if you haven't inhaled that sausage in one breath in under 30 seconds, a fork will come from behind and someone will go, don't want that, do you? And they'll eat it. So everyone I know that comes from a really big family, you can tell that you sit down to eat with them and they just eat incredibly. They talk very fast because yeah. that's the only way you can get your, your conversation in around the table and they eat very fast. And then when I was 12, I found the way that I could finally start chewing my food rather than inhaling it down in one, which is that if you just very gently pick up each item of food on your plate and lick it, Ooh. 
performatively for everyone around the table and then just put it back on the plate like, you're not going to eat that now, are you? That's mine. I've marked that with my saliva. And that was what I learned at the age of 12. Lots of indigestion, basically, beforehand. (laughs) Oh, we were very gassy. I mean... (laughs) If you're all talking very fast and then you're all eating very fast during a meal, kind of like the, the meal is over like that yeah. and then everybody lies in the front room like lions under a tree after a kill and then 10 minutes later the gas arrives and it's just a kind of brassy symphony of parping for about two hours because no one's digested that stuff properly. It gets very gassy. <laughs> and were you the oldest? I was right? the oldest, yes. What was it like having so many siblings? I'm a natural leader. I'm kind, I'm fair, I'm firm. I was abusive quite a lot of the time. When you're When you're... <laughs> When you're the oldest one, you don't realise that you are abusing your power. So, for instance, I would do things like invent a religion where all my younger siblings would have to come to me and confess their sins. And then I would write down all their sins in a book and then blackmail them for the rest of the week going, well, I'll tell mum that it was you that ate all the jelly in the cupboard unless you do what I tell you now. So I come up with schemes like we only had three bedrooms in the eight kids. So I come up with schemes where I should have a bedroom of my own and they should all sleep in another room like a dormitory. And I'd sell it to them like it'd be like boarding school. It'd be like Hogwarts or St. Mallory's or St. Clair's in Indian Blyton books. You'll all be in this fabulous dormitory having a great time and I'll be on my own. That'll be sad in the other room. But, you know, someone's me. I know someone's got to have that room on their own. Did that work? Uh, They they went on with it for about four hours and then there was a kind of military coup Mm -hmm. and I was overthrown like some kind of uh, bad military leader and uh, yeah, they crushed my tyranny at that point and uh, we went back to sharing our rooms. (laughs) Did you have times where you were closer to some siblings? You must have felt like you could go to each one for different things. Yes. Well, there was the big ones and the little ones. Oh, really? My parents didn't spend much time working out labels for the categories of children so the the big ones were the big ones and the little ones were the little ones and the big ones were told to look after the little ones under pain of death. Right. So you'd just be kind of, you know, if you went for a, a country walk, it would just... Have you been watching SAS Are You Tough Enough? Have you had a chance to watch that? I've seen bits of it, because Ant Middleton did the podcast last <laughs> series. I love that show. In every one, there's an enforced march where people are walking through snow, having to carry their <laughs> kit bags and just crying and crying and crying for miles. That's what it's like going for a walk with eight children that are all younger than you. Just like, just a lovely walk down to the park. They're just the, like, the younger ones get tired and they're just crying and crying and crying and they sit down and they can't do it anymore and they don't want to be in the SAS. So your job as the older child is to pick them up and carry them all the way to the park. It must have been absolute mayhem. It was, yeah. I mean, my parents made it worse by, worse slash more interesting, depends how you interpret it, um, by deciding they were taking us all out of school in 1986. So we were then homeschooled. From um, what age? Well, so it was, we all came out in 1986, so I was 11. Right. And then all the other children were in two-year increments down. Okay. So some of them never went to school. Because wow. uh, my parents were hippies and they believed. Basically, we, we were the only hippies in Wolverhampton and we were being quite badly bullied at school. Right, okay. Because if in 1986 you sent your children to school with a packed lunch that wasn't a Kit Kat and a Spam sandwich and uh, a packet of Quavers, but a jar of muesli. Yes. <laughs> people didn't know what muesli was in Wolverhampton in 1986. And you just get people seeing your jar and go, is that poosley? And then you'd have 10 evil 10-year-olds yeah. uh, just kind of cackling at you. So so having been bullied for my love of muesli, my parents decided, they just said, do you want to go to school anymore? Mm. And if you ask, you know, like a bunch of kids, do you want to go to school anymore? They'll just go, No. So then you go through a very interesting process that if you talk to anybody who's been homeschooled and is on the rise, and it's a really big thing in America, for the first year you are de-schooled. 
So for the first year, you tend not to want to learn anything. You yeah. won't go near a book. You don't want to learn anything. You're like, no, 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 no. I've had learning stuff down my throat. I don't care. I'm going to de-school. And then usually about a year to the day, you suddenly, you're a child's natural curiosity will awaken. Because children mm-hmm. naturally, before they're sent to school and made to do this thing, even when they're tired or they don't care about something, want to learn things. You know, they want to go and stick their fingers in holes and try and make sort of machines and stick things together and work out how nature works and talk to people. So then suddenly you you have this kind of revelation where you're like, oh, I can learn what I want when I want. Mm. If I get really obsessed with something, I can stay up till three in the morning and keep reading these books about geology or like, you know, the Spanish Civil War. And if I don't want to learn something, i.e. maths, then I will never have to do it again. <laughs> so I stopped learning maths at the age of 11. And I can remember you, you get sort of school inspectors who come and check sort of like two or three times a year that your home education is okay. And one of them went, well, Katie, we've, we've noticed that you're not, uh, you're not learning any maths. So, you know, didn't you worry about that? And I very confidently said... I've got a feeling I'll become so good at English that I'll be able to hire an accountant and he'll be able to deal with all my maths. And that is what I did. I literally saw the future. But I mean, you know, Pythagoras theory is lovely, but have you ever... I've never had to use it as an adult. Absolutely not, no. Things like even needing to know what six times seven is... I don't actually believe that someone could know that and when will it ever be useful? It's <laughs> Calculating the percentage of something, no need. We've all got <laughs> iPhones. It's fine. Very true. Was it difficult, though, with, for your mum and dad to have kids of different ages and different abilities or was it just a case of... Will is very free-flowing in terms of what you want to learn. There's two types of people who home educate. There's the first ones who are like, we want to home educate you because we think we can do better than the schooling system. Mm-hmm. We see how we could take you for a nature walk and as you go on that nature walk, we could be talking about the history of the area, the geology, the geography, tell you about kind of, you know, sort of like different civilizations and different ways to survive in this habitat. No, 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 no. And then there are the ones who are just very lazy and can't be bothered to take you to school every day. Right. Uh, my parents are very much in the second category. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so our... well, it's a lot of organisation to get so many kids out of the house. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, once my mother jokingly said, but I think the truth was in there, that she just went, it was just a massive pain in the ass to get eight pairs of knickers and eight clean pairs of socks ready every morning. So <laughs> I just took you out of school. You could live in pyjamas, which we did. Um, so our average day would revolve around selecting a classic MGM musical, such as On the Town or Meet Me in St. Louis, and then constructing a plate full of cheese lollipops, which is a massive fist of the cheapest cheddar from the supermarket, which you then uh, you kind of tear off the block with your hand mm-hmm, nice no need to find or dirty a knife why, why make yourself yes. work <laughs> and then sort of crush it into a vaguely circular shape with your hand and then spear it on a fork and then you just lick the cheese <laughs> on the fork as you watch the classic musical and in that way you learn every lyric in every great musical and you put on about six stone before you reach the age of 15 and that was indeed my life oh, amazing <laughs> <laughs> really selling it i know right yeah <laughs> This is why I've sent my children to school. <laughs> is it? Did, yes. did any part of you think, oh, should I? I'm, it, I guess if you were in the first category. Yes. Maybe, I, mean, but... I mean, the thing is, in terms of education, you can learn and do learn more. And it's mm. better for your long term life. Because if you think about it, it's quite crazy that the education system that kind of like these subjects have been chosen randomly. Some of them have been chosen key and you mm-hmm. have to keep retaking those exams until you pass them. And then at a certain point, your education is supposed to stop and then you become someone who earns money from their education. Well, that's not how humans work. Yeah. Like, kind of, you know, we, you know, there are certain things that we'll never be good at learning. Mm-hmm. We'll never have an interest in. We know have no interest in our lives. There are other things that we'll be obsessive about that we want to spend all our time on that will allow us to become brilliant. If you've read any of those Malcolm Gladwell books about it taking 10,000 hours for you to become brilliant oh, yeah, at something, yeah. that's the secret of genius. So Bill Gates had done 10,000 hours of programming before he was 15 because he was obsessive about programming early computers and that's how he went on to form Microsoft. Uh, the Beatles had done 10,000 hours of playing when they were sort of on yeah. tour sort of in, in Germany and stuff. So you need to do your 10,000 hours. 
within the current schooling system, no one would be able to do 10,000 hours of anything that mm. they were passionate about and loved until they'd left university. So you'd only start being able to really hone your skills and your talents after you left formal education mm. in the current system. You know, I would, in a heartbeat, home educate my children because it's definitely a much better way of learning. It fits in with your schedule and things like teenagers need to sleep longer. Yeah. It doesn't fit in with the school system at all. Mm-hmm. You can see it breaking them. But in terms of socialisation... You know, we were just very, very lonely and very socially awkward. Really? As you've noticed from the fact that I just talk constantly, don't really know how to have a conversation. Oh, I like that, though. <laughs> I'm happy with that. Even Davina's episode, when Davina McCall came in, she was like, am I okay to just keep talking? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You just keep talking. Phew, I will keep talking. Though. This is what I need to hear. That's all I need to hear. I've been affirmed now. But uh, but no, we were, we we're all very socially. And you meet anybody who's home educated and we kind of, we can do speeches. We yeah. can kind of, you know, we can sort of deliver show. stuff. Yeah. Exactly. But kind of like sitting down and talking to people, we just didn't have that experience. We never sort of even though there were so many of you and you could talk to each other, but we can talk over each other. If if you come from a big family, you have this circular listening and talking thing Mm -hmm. where I could be talking and listening at the same time, (laughs) and halfway through a sentence, listen to what my sibling was saying and start screaming at them angrily (laughs) in reply to what they'd said, but then continue with my own point afterwards, all without breathing in. (laughs) So, coming from a big family, did that make you want to have a big family? Yes, until I actually went through childbirth. Right. Um, so before I had my first child, I thought I would like five, I thought eight successive. That's many, just silly. I, yeah. It's different. If you're buying like a multi-pack, they either come in fives or tens. So to have eight children makes no sense. It's just, <laughs> that maths don't, I understand that. But it's hard to divide between eight. Um, although I, one of my greatest skills is that I can take a Mars bar mm-hmm. and I can divide that into eight absolutely equal slices. Because we, we were very, very poor. I can divide anything with a sharp enough knife into eight absolutely equal slices. We used to have a thing growing up where one would cut, the other one would choose. That's, and it, I didn't know that as a child. <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> oh, my God, the arguments. If we'd known that. So I thought, I thought I'd have four or five children. Okay. That seemed like a nice amount. A literal handful. And then after I had the first child, I was like, maybe, maybe I'll cut that down to three. You don't think okay. I'd want to do that five times? Like, that chafed. <laughs> I, I heard it was difficult, but that really was an effort. Um, and then after I had the second round, I was like, no, that's it. <laughs> really? <laughs> Tried that the second time. It just didn't really get any better. This is, this is diminishing returns here. <laughs> so what were your pregnancies like? I was massively in denial with the first one. My mum, so my mum had had eight children and she was a hippie. And she never allowed us to have medicines or painkillers yeah. or use deodorants. It might give you cancer. Yeah. It's like, it may give me cancer, but it would also stop me smelling of onions. <laughs> I had to spend the first 15 years of my life with my arms down like this. If I raised my arm, you could <laughs> literally see the smell come out. And so she, and her whole thing was, the baby is the wise one in the labour. Right. right. The baby knows how to come out. Mm-hmm. The baby's a little Buddha. And the baby's in charge of the birth and it will just come out and you just need to, you know, you'll, you'll transform into something else. You go out to sea. There are all these horrible metaphors about going out to sea and stuff. And I'm a bad sailor, so I was already quite <laughs> tense about this. I don't, I don't like water. Yeah. <laughs> Can we not have a land-based analogy? Because I really don't like the sea. It's got fish in it. I was basically in denial of the fact I was going to have a baby. Mm. So I did nothing. I got very unfit. The end of my pregnancy was over Christmas, so it seemed very reasonable to me that my breakfast would be, say, four mince pies covered in cream, <laughs> double cream, like a proper bucket of cream. Yeah. Um, so I was massively overweight and very unfit when I went into then I went overdue and I knew from reading all the stories that if you get induced as soon as they put that drip in then the labour's suddenly going to accelerate massively you're going to be in a huge amount of pain they'll have to put an epidural in because you won't be able to cope with it Mm. then you won't be able to push properly and it'll either end up with an episiotomy and forceps or an emergency c-section and sure enough it it came to be but yeah but it was four days before we finally had the emergency c-section and it was during a staffing crisis at our local hospital and there was one point where this very 
I mean, most midwives are amazing, but every so often you get a really sour one. Mm. Got a very sour one who came in and just looked at my birth plan, kind of laughing. I went, I see you wanted, uh, she was Swedish. I see you, and I can't do a Swedish accent. This is as near as we're <laughs> going to get. Try, yeah. <laughs> I see you wanted a water birth. And so many of the mothers, they want a water birth, but we have to cut open their tummies. I was sitting there in labour going, oh, me. Couldn't we have kept the pretense of a bit longer that I might be able to have the birth I want? Well, that's not that's not great. No. Having even someone because that's not being supportive. No, and it, uh, the, as soon as you hear someone talking to you like that, yeah. your cervix will just shut yeah. tight like a clam. Yep, like kind of that. Because suddenly you're fearful. Yeah. And also you do need to be out of your body a bit. Like, you know, it's a very primal thing. I mean, mm. I, I found out in my second birth, which was a dream, yeah. I kept fit. I did hypnobirthing, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. And every time someone says they're pregnant, I just grab them and go, hypnobirthing, just get the CD, please. I'll send it you myself. Mm-hmm. Because they just describe what's going to happen. Yeah. So that you know that every pain that you have, first of all, you don't call it a pain. You call it like an energy rush. Mm-hmm. And it's useful and you want that to happen. If that's not happening, mm. every other alternative is just going to be a bit more of a pain in the arse, literally. Yeah. You know, each of those sensations is just opening your cervix a bit more and that's what you want. Because after a certain amount of these, you know, so yeah. to do this, you tick each one of these contractions off and at the end of it, you're going to push out a baby and it's done. Mm. I'd like, I, I didn't know that. Where, this is how ignorant I was. When I got pregnant with my first child... At my seven-month checkup, we were in a room where there was what I thought was a piece of modern sculpture on the wall. Yeah. It looked like an eye that okay. was went from closed to open in ten stages. Okay. And I was like, wow, what's that? Is that like rip-off Jeff Koons or like kind of... I don't know that sculptor. What is it? What's that? And she went, those are the ten stages of dilation. That's the cervix. I was like, what? <laughs> she went, that's the cervix, like going from one to ten centimetres dilated. That's what happens during birth. I was like... The cervix died. The baby comes out the cervix. How? I felt that. It's completely solid. And she was like, well, that's why it's all a bit of an effort. <laughs> it's just like, I was staggered. I didn't know it came out the cervix. Yeah. I'd felt the cervix. You know, when you lose a tampon and it's all gone wrong, and you're in a <laughs> nightclub toilet drunk going, ah, you're rummaging What's around that? in there going, oh, there's so much stuff up here. There's like a trapdoor thing. There's a kind of lumpy thing. This is like a storage cupboard. I need to clean this out. Um, and I felt the cervix, and I just the idea that a baby would come out of that. I don't know where I thought it was going to come out of. I think I thought there was there was literally another hatch in there or something that it would. That I'd never felt yet that it would just drop out of. So yeah, so it was it was it was quite a surprise to me <laughs> to learn yeah. that I had to open that up and then push a baby through it. I mean, I still think it's quite unlikely and unrealistic to be honest. Like. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we were all in some kind of mass hallucination. Cause really? <laughs> That's not where it comes from. Well, you look silly. back now, exactly. <laughs> you're like, I mean, how likely does it seem to you? I mean, you've done it fairly recently, but yeah. like kind of... Yeah, it's just, it is completely mind-boggling how did that, that, that all happens. How did that happen? It got that, look, it got as big as this microphone baffle. <laughs> you went, something that's usually like this. Yeah. I mean, my mouth is really, really flexible. I can't get that. <laughs> no. And that's, that's, that's a proper hole. Yeah. That's regularly used. That? How's that cervix going to open? That's... <laughs> it's just a rumour. It's just a rumour. It's fake news. They wouldn't make women do that. They wouldn't, would they? Why would they make us do that? Seriously. That'd be horrible. We've got the vote now. We should have to... There must be other Play ways. cervix all yes. the way. <laughs> That's the end of that nonsense. They used to do it that way, but not anymore. We made that better. But what made you switch from first time around? Because how, what was it? Oh, two years. Two yeah. years. So what in that time made you go, actually, I'm going to do hypnobirthing next time around? Like, what was the shift? A ferocious amount of pain. I mean, like, it was a really terrible birth. It was a three-day labour. There were four failed epidurals. 
I trapped a nerve. That's still kind of numb there now. It was a party mm. trick. I can like sort of poke pins into my thigh. I can't feel anything there at all. She was trapped. She was posterior because yeah. I'd just been slumped. I mean, it was just a classic kind of, it was everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And I was in so much pain afterwards. And I just sat there and just going, well, this is your fault, really. Like now, you know, I went up and read about it afterwards. I've read all those books that you were supposed to see and sort of went, oh, wow, all the information was there. People were really trying to tell me something quite, quite intense here. Turns out that, okay, I made a choice really early on in this pregnancy. One, all of the information in the world about birthing contained in every book and every manual and every professional that I was seeing, or my mum going, it's all right, the baby knows what it's doing. (laughs) 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 Well, she had had eight children by then. (laughs) Yeah, but the thing I forgot was she nearly died after every single one. After every single birth, she would come back looking like a ghost going, they tried to pull the placenta out Uh... with the umbilical cord because it got stuck or hemorrhaged on that one or trapped a nerve on that one or that was an emergency C-section or those two were ginger. Like, every single time it went wrong. (laughs) It's just like, why am I listening to my mother? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Listen to the medical people. They've seen it all before. Um, So, yeah, so the second time around, I was like, I'm not going to do it like my mum. I am now. Evolution. Now, between the generations, I'm going to improve on the way that my mum did things. There will now be progress in our in our family lineage. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so I did the hypnobirthing, understood about it all, got into some lovely kind of hippy-dippy imagery about peonies opening and stuff. When you are pregnant, though, you have to realise how crazy you are. So one of the hypnobirthing tutors that I had said, what would be really useful for you if you get a beautiful peony, get a really beautiful the flower, the peony, and just look at it, because that's basically what you're doing. You're opening up like a beautiful peony. That's what the cervix is doing, beautiful peony. And then I went to a florist and they went, no, they're out of season. And I just, <laughs> and I just stood there crying, but I'm pregnant! <laughs> Absolutely howling, completely devastated, walking out. Don't they know I've got life inside me? You can't handle that kind of stuff. Did you end up switching flour? (laughs) (laughs) My husband just went, oh, no, God, I was... So I generally have a very good sense of humour. Yeah. And my husband knows my sense of humour and we share it. But like he, he I came back crying, oh, no penis, oh, no penis. He was like, don't worry, I'll get you a beautiful substitute. And he went out and came back with a cabbage. <laughs> and he went, look, they open up the same, just look a bit like a cervix. And normally, if I wasn't seven months pregnant, I would be laughing at that's funny. That is funny. <laughs> Obviously, I'm pregnant. I have no sense of humour at all. <laughs> You've just called me cabbage fatty. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty when it was a peony. Now know, it's a cabbage. Now it's a cabbage. <laughs> I'm never going to have a baby with you again. <laughs> Is that what did it? Is that, mm. what... <laughs> that was it. The greatest contraceptive of all. Someone, someone calling your cervix cabbage life. That will. That was the end of that. Just talked to all the. Just had a little word with the ovaries. <laughs> you can turn off now. We've done. No more reproduction for you. But you have no sense of humour when you're when you're pregnant and when you're uh, and and after after you're pregnant as well. Like I know you are in a different state entirely. Yeah, you are. And so after I had the second one, which was a brilliant, it was a, an amazing birth. Were you fearful going into the no. second one? Not no. at all. No, not at all. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. My husband was fearful because he'd seen how bad it was the first time, and it's, I think it, I think in some ways I would make an argument that it's harder for the husband than for the wife because they can't you're watching yeah. your wife be tortured basically mm. and the only thing he'd think to do he's sort of like sort of in the early stages of labor i'm just sort of getting on with it i found that making a mooing sounds working really well for mm-hmm. me just on all fours mm. Mm. at one point they did have to tell me to not moo quite so loudly 
<laughs> Must stop mooing. Uh, <laughs> sad cow. Um, and <laughs> my husband disappeared and came back and he'd gone to a corner shop and they because they told him it would probably be quite a long birth because I was going very slowly but you know firmly. And he came back with a carrier bag. And we were in a hospital that was right next to Abbey Road. And oh, there's yeah. a Beatles gift shop there. So he'd come back with, he'd gone to the shop and bought a load of snacks. So he got like the knickknacks, yop, Milky Ways, Caramac bars. He'd line them all oh, up on the great. shelf like a little yeah. corner shop. And then he got a 8 by 12 glossy picture of Paul McCartney from the Beatles shop. And then he put that behind it. It's like, that's all you need. I've got your carbohydrates <laughs> and the best one from the Beatles. Off you go. And he's all proud that he's made his little corner shop of fabs and snacks. And I was like, I don't need Macca. <laughs> Don't need knickknacks. Moo. <laughs> really sadly put them all back in the bag and took them away again. And then when we got to the pushing bit, uh, it was a water birth. I was in the tub and it went really, really suddenly. I was pushing. She sort of came out in four pushes. So I did the first two. It was really clear she was coming out. And he suddenly panicked. He was like, shall I get in the pool with her? Like, shall I be there for the birth? And uh, and all the nurses were busy kind of with the baby. So he just, I could see him at the corner of my eye, just sort of really worriedly and panicked, taking off his shoes and then taking off his trousers. And then he just quietly put his hand up, like really panicked, not wanting to make a fuss, but really wanting to get in the pool. And went, Sorry, I, I forgot my swimming costume. Can I just get in in pants? <laughs> they were all really busy. I was like, moo, 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 don't care about pants, moo. <laughs> he started to get in the pool in his pants. I wish the baby came out and they went, get out, get out, we've got to clear the pool. And I could see it was just him in his wet pants just climbing back out again. Then just standing there, like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> oh, bless him. Oh, it's hard. I remember when I, when we, before we were going, there's a checklist for like what to take in with you. Yes. And it says swimsuits for dads. Yes. And I asked them about it, and it's because loads of dads have just been whipping their stuff off, which is fine for women to yes. do that, obviously, because you've been birth, but midwives don't want to see Willy Winkles. I know, exactly. Yeah, around. and pair of boxer shorts, and you've been in the hospital for a couple of days as well. Yeah. Like, they're not going to be your best pants, are they? They won't have changed. <laughs> Suddenly, at the end of it all, horrible uh, wife fronts in the beautiful moment of birth. No. Yeah. <laughs> but there is, I think, with hypnobirthing, everyone thinks it's really oh, calm, and it, and it is to an extent, but there's something so so animalistic about yes. it. Yes, well, moo. Yeah. Moo. What was your animal? Where did you go animal-wise or sound-wise? Or were you know, a quiet you know sufferer? I think I was. Not a quiet sufferer, but I think I was. It was all very internal. Yes. Not because I was like, I can't make a sound, mm. but just because I was almost sort of lost in it. I fell asleep. Did you? Literally. So I. So this time round, I had to get my waters broken mm-hmm. just because it had been a while and he was... Uh, Did they come with a knitting needle? Hey. Yeah. Only because he was in a slightly, slightly awkward position. And, uh, and well, I, inside you. I mean, it's the yes. most awkward position of all. I mean, it's, it is, it's it not is. beyond the surface. It couldn't be worse. <laughs> but he was slightly diagonal, so his head wasn't touching down. So they said, we just think, it's up to you. You can carry on doing what you're doing. And I just thought, you know what? Fine. You you break the waters. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever. So they broke the waters. So I got into the pool and I fell asleep. <laughs> but literally, it was only half an hour after they broke my waters yeah. that he arrived. Blimey, how? And what? Yeah. Had you been contracting before then? Oh, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Right. Oh, it was all happening. I was six centimetres already. Yeah, yeah. But all of a sudden it was like, I'm ready! Bloody hell. And was that a bit of a shock? Were you ready for that? Because there's that transition, because so much of it's about drugs, isn't it? Like, yeah. kind of like for, for when you're contracting. But don't you feel like it's ta- it feels like you've taken every drug? Yes. Oh, God, yeah. No, you're absolutely out of it. And that's yeah. why, like, kind of, if you understood it more in terms of it's like going to Glastonbury mm-hmm. and, like, kind of taking everything yeah. and then suddenly, right at the end of it, suddenly there's a baby. And, like, <laughs> and the disjunction between your, you know, your body is producing crazy, crazy stuff, stuff that makes angel dust and crack look like a <laughs> cup of tea and a biscuit. Like, if you think how much your body's having to do to yeah. open a cervix, push a baby out, and then make milk come out your tits. 
Like, kind of, you're doing all this stuff. New hatch. You've grown a new organ. You've grown a new pint of blood. You've created life inside you as if you are God. You've made a new cupboard. You've then opened <laughs> a new hatch. You've then done all the tearing and the giganticness and the kind of, well, that wasn't supposed to be used for that purpose. I'm pretty sure moment of pushing a baby out. And then instantly, your tits turn into a snack bar. <laughs> and you're like, and suddenly you're food. You've turned into food. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I had a very interesting <laughs> teens and twenties. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of dabbled on the, you know, dabbled with drugs on the side, but I never, nothing like that ever happened in my mind, like happened to me in my body by having a baby. So as a consequence, you have to understand that, like, a woman that has just given birth has come back from, like, Glastonbury or, like, Woodstock or Altamont. She has been on the moon. And so the things that then consequently happen in that time afterwards, we know, you know, you can go all the way to you know, postpartum psychosis yeah. and extreme depression, really bad postnatal depression. But even if you're not going as far as that, you're still quite, quite weird for, like, mm. at least a year after. Like, first of all, your sense of humour does tend to disappear, <laughs> as evidenced by the, the cabbage story of earlier, of your. Um, and secondly, you'll get these weird ideas in your head, like, I, we moved house six weeks after I gave birth to my second daughter. Right. Now, that's never a good idea, <laughs> but that was just what happened. And we, for the first time, I got a garden. We'd been in an apartment before, and I finally had a garden and a proper house. And I was like... I must get the garden ready. You know, I'm so excited I've got a garden. So what should I do now I've got this garden? I want to transform it. This is going to be my garden. What's the first thing I should do? I know I need to buy a 20 foot by 5 foot long canvas and a box of oil paints because before I plant my garden and plan my garden, I need to do a painting of it first in all four seasons of its <laughs> transformation. So I need to get a 20 foot canvas, divide it into four, buy some oil paints and paint the garden first <laughs> in spring, summer, autumn and winter before I start planting that garden with a six-week-old baby. And I've never painted before. I don't even know what oil paints are. What? How did it go? absolutely sensible to me. My husband does... I mean, you can imagine, when they deliver... A it had to be custom-made, this canvas. When they carry in a 20-foot-long canvas into the house, my husband's standing there in the kitchen, just kind of with a cup of tea, just going, clearly with a look on his face, like, don't say anything, yeah. don't say anything. Everybody I know at that point has had moments where they... At that point, you think your life has to change because you've just had a baby. It's like, mm. well, that last week was so weird. Now I've got to top it. So my friend, who's an incredibly successful writer, when her baby was about 12 weeks old, her, came in, her husband came into the kitchen and she was going, well, I know what I've got to do. I'm retraining as a barista. And he was like, you are one of the most successful writers in the country. What are you talking about? She was like, no, I just know that this is it. We're going to go and live in Swindon. And I'm going to become a barista. My future is coffee. And again, it was their second <laughs> child, thank God. So he just knew... You just have to say yes. <laughs> just say yes and nod. Don't do anything else. And then back out the room. <laughs> Crazy lady. Well, that's just the thing. We were it. saying earlier, you can't say to someone, this is your hormones. You're not yes. thinking rationally. No. You've just got to kind of get, mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. And that's a wisdom to say nothing at all. Just keep hugging the pregnant lady. And then if there are people behind her that when you're hugging her, you can go, she's crazy right now. <laughs> she's crazy right now over her shoulder. Yeah. That's good and that's what you need to do. But yes, they're crazy. We are crazy. We must we must accept this. Because it's accepted in every other walk of life. Yeah. Like, I do know, you know when a rock star gets famous for the first time, they're going to spend those first two years. There's a definite recognisable cycle. You're kind of, first of all, you're in denial that you got famous. Then you react against it. Then if you get into drugs, you tend to dye your hair blonde. That's a very noticeable phase that you'll go through. Through. Then you go through like a kind of pure phase where you strip everything back and you become minimal. But we don't sort of chronicle this. The idea is that as soon as you've had a baby, you're just a mum making cupcakes. And it's not. It's a psychedelic odyssey. How did you find it? Because uh, your life must have changed dramatically. Yeah. I knew how to look after children because I was the of eldest course, of eight. Yeah. So all of that, changing nappies, how to feed them, that if you drop them, it's 
generally fine, not to freak about, about that too much. You don't need to keep checking their breathing. So I was a very casual, relaxed, confident mum. But I just, I remember just every night until they were about sort of four and six, just sitting on the bed, reading their story, waiting for them to go to sleep, just going, just not enjoying this. Really? <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, it's quite boring. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that I didn't know then, that I've learned, the big thing that I learned subsequently is it's all phases. Yeah. And you'll be good at some phases, as a parent, you'll be terrible at other ones. Mm. Some phases you'll love, other phases you'll hate. Yeah. So children that are fairly non-verbal, they're not chatty. Why do I care about them? <laughs> of course I'm not going to get on with these tiny, quiet people. Ugh. As soon as they start talking and being funny and asking questions, we can go out. I'm brilliant to that. That's amazing. So we have 10 years of awesomeness. And then now they're teenage girls. Oh, my God. Like, you know, that's my specialist subject. So, like, you Yeah. Know. Well, is it different having... Teenage girls, because obviously a lot of teenage girls look to you for the answers. Yes. But do your teenage girls do that? Or is it a case of, because for me, I'm like, oh, mum. Yeah. Oh, God, absolutely. Like, if I wanted to keep the biggest secret of my life from my children, I would simply put it in one of my books and it would be absolutely, they would never know. In fact, one of one of my books, my third book, I dedicated to them on the front. Yeah. I went, I love you both. To Lizzie and Nancy, I love you hugely, but you must pick up the wet towels off the bathroom floor. They do not dry there on their own. You are breaking a good woman here, for the love of God. Just please put them on the heated towel rail. Obviously, they've never read it. They've never, they've never done it. No, they don't know they've got a book dedicated to them. So, unfortunately and annoyingly, all the advice that they need to have is in these books. Yeah. And they are the only teenage girls who, who will never read them. So, And also, if I start giving them this advice, they start going, are you quoting from the Bible there, mother? Are you quoting from how to be a woman? How, <laughs> how very cloddish, how very recherche, how very jejun. <laughs> this is not cool. Can you not come up with new advice for us, your children? Bastards. That's got to be so hard. It's really hard. I had a friend when my kids were about, when my kids were four and six and I still wasn't enjoying them being little, she had teenagers and she, she had an incredibly high-powered job and she was amazingly good at it and she resigned when her kids hit their teens to spend more time at home with them. Oh, really? And at the time I didn't understand it. I was like... You're over the bad. They can make their own breakfast. They can stick clothes in the wash. Like, surely this is the easy phase now. Yeah. She was like, mate, just wait. Because they've got so many problems and their schedules are so full and they can be upset and freaked out or worried by or obsessing about or anxious about or broken by a thought that they'll keep silent for months and months and months mm. and then there'll be one minute in the month that they will finally be ready to talk to you. And if you are trying to hustle out the door at that point to go and like go to work or do some shopping or go and see some friends or whatever it is, they will just go, oh, no, it's fine. I don't need to talk about it. And that'll be it. Yeah. These tiny little windows open into their heads and you've got to be there for it. It's crazy. It's like it's almost like being a bird watcher or something. You know, you're just sitting there for ages in the marsh with your binoculars, just waiting for like the lesser spotted problem to finally come in and say what it is. And you've got to be there for that moment and see it because then when it flies off again, they just won't talk to you about that for another six months or a year. And is it one of those things where if you try and push a subject, it just closes everything off? You can't do it. It's weird. It's like some kind of weird dreamlike jujitsu where every time you move towards something, it'll move away from you. Yeah. With teenagers, you have to be an absolutely immovable, solid, very dull object that's just there all the time. You cannot be an interesting person when your children are in their teenage years because they are the most, you know, quite rightly, they are the stars of the show. Yeah. It's all about them. This is their moment. They're exploding. They're turning into something else. So you just have to turn into this parodically boring mum 
that just sits there, just sort of like like an idiot, just kind of I'm just sitting there all the time going, oh, well, I wouldn't know about sex. <laughs> is that something you children See, have invented? That's, that's so funny as well, though, because one of your kind of missions is to get people talking about sex in a very realistic way yes. so that women and, you know, boys, we have to start talking to them as well. Totally, yeah. Uh, so that they know what to expect and it's not all porn or whatever. Yes. And, and you can't have that conversation with yours. You, you almost need it. to have someone... You know, need to mould someone so that they can talk to your children. A little clone, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I was really hoping one of my sisters would do that. Like, they'd be, oh, so, really? the aunt would be able to come in and do that. But they're all like, oh, I'm not going to talk about sex either. Like, just, that is your realm. I don't want to go anywhere near it. So, no, you just have to pretend to be this very dull person. Just like, oh, I don't know about that in my day. You have to really turn yourself down and yeah. off for a couple of years and let them be as big as they want to be. Because otherwise they just feel like they are being suffocated. And especially if you have got a big personality, you are quite chatty. Yeah. You know, if I was like this all the time in, in the kitchen, like... They just feel crushed. It's not fair. Yeah. So because there's an interesting story that you write in How to Be a Woman about you coming on your period. Yes. The first time, <laughs> and I just chuckled so much because you tried to tell a few people. Then you told your mum. Yes. But she was sat breastfeeding, sorting uh, out a whitewash, sorting out a whitewash yes. while going for a pee. Yes. Pregnant. Yes. And then she just said to you. It'll be okay. And then the baby woke up, so everything was... That was it. That's all you got. That was my one question I got to ask. I went, Mum, my period, it hurts. Is that normal? And she went, yeah. But it's okay. <laughs> but it's okay. And that's it. And then that was the baby woke up, and that was it. That was my one question I got to ask about menstruation. Yeah. But I really did think it was optional. Right. Like, I'd only learned about it about six months before it started. And I'd only learned about it because someone had left a Lillette leaflet in the hedge outside our house. Mm. So I sort of, like, pulled the instructional leaflet from the, from the box out and looked at it, and they got all the diagrams and stuff. And the diagrams blew my mind because I just thought I was solid inside like a sausage. So to suddenly learn that you had all these burrows and tunnels, like my friend had a hamster with one of those really complex hamster sort of cages with all the tunnels and stuff that the hamster could run around in. And that's what the internal organs of a lady seemed to look like. It's like, wow, it's like some hamster rotor stack. And then you sort of put the tampon in here and then the blood comes out here. And I was like... This just, well, I mean, I just don't think I want to do it. I, I think I'm going to opt out. I genuinely thought I could opt out at that point. And then sure enough, six months later, hormones tell you you cannot opt out. And it was just, and I went and asked my mum and that was the only piece of advice that she could give me that it was okay. But moments like that, did it make you go, okay, when I have children, yes. I'm going to be talking like this. And... Oh, I fetishised it. I was like, oh God, I can't wait for their teenagers. <laughs> Didn't know what I know now. I was like, oh, I'm going to be the best mum ever. I got this nailed. And when they were about 10, I prepared for, you know, because these days you sort of the, the, the onset of menstruation can happen much earlier. So from 10, I was ready. Mm. And I wrote them, I wrote the oldest one first, this beautiful like little leaflet. I illustrated it. It was all about different, kind of like coming of age rituals from around the world and sort of like a list of all the different ways people would refer to your periods and all the blood and stuff in sort of like it was funny and it was loving and it was informative and it was like me and you will get through this together and la 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 yeah. and then I popped it on her pillow for her to read oh. in her own time so yeah. she'd be able to read it in her own time and then about five weeks later I was tidying up the landing and I found that she just stuffed it behind a chest of drawers Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was there a stage that you found the most difficult? Uh, yeah, four centimetres dilated after five days <laughs> and still no sign of Jack. I think when they were little, it was just kind of just the grind of that, yeah. uh, just the remorselessness of it. Just the fact that they couldn't really make jokes at that point. Or their, their humour was very rudimentary. So there was one year where we were all making Christmas crackers and everyone had to write their own jokes for the Christmas crackers. And the oldest one's joke was, knock, knock, who's there? Pasta, pasta flushed down the toilet. <laughs> Ha, 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 And you'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> you don't get humour yet. We need to workshop this. You've heard jokes, but you really don't understand where they're coming from, are you? This is going to be a long couple of years here. I found that boring, but as soon as they could talk, that was it. And, like, now as teenage girls, it's an absolute joy. Really? Like, I'm really it's, it's hard Because I've heard the bigger the child, the bigger the problem, which is obviously true. Yeah. And, and I know that you've you've written a column about self-harm yes. with girls. And is it a quarter of girls have now? 22% of yeah. all girls in this country in declared figures, have self-harmed. I'm pretty sure those figures would be bigger, but a lot of people aren't talking about it. Yeah, I mean, the mental health crisis, particularly for teenage girls in this country, is off the scale at the moment. Mm. And the NHS is completely incapable of dealing with it. Like, the funding just isn't there. Uh, you know, until we start seeing mental health as something absolutely identical to physical health. It just happens to you. You need to get the help for it as soon as possible. But the moment the waiting list, if you, for instance, have an eating disorder, is a year and a half to two years before you get proper... And in that time, in, the, in yeah. your teenage years, yeah. you know, that's like having... You wait in 10 years as an adult. There's such crucial years. You know, there's mm. years where you're doing your, you know, your exams and stuff. You can just lose a huge chunk of your life. So, so I mean, it's, you know, it's intense. And even if your children are not affected by these things, they will absolutely in their social circle have children who are. And these things are catching. Like kind of you are, if your friends are unhappy, you will be unhappy. Yeah. Like, and these ideas are so popular now. It's so normal to see a child who is scarred. It's so normal to see a child who isn't eating. It's so normal to see a child who's having to go off to hospital every day. And that's, you know, it's an alarming climate to be raised mm -hmm. in, like to be so, you know, to just see people sort of like going down all around you and they're not being the support there and knowing this. And then it makes you think about the language you use as a parent because like for years I would just go, well, the only thing that I care about is you guys being happy. I just want you to be happy. And you think that's a lovely thing to say to a child. Yeah. But that's actually another pressure that you're putting on a child. You go, you know, and, you know, they've got their to-do list of all the things they want to do, do well at exams and, like, you know, keep fit and see their friends and stuff. And then it's also, I've got to be happy for mum and dad. Yeah. You know, I've got to seem to be enjoying my life and grateful for it. And, like, you know, I'm aware of my privilege. Like, you know, you know, I live in the first world. I'm a lucky person. Um, so I've stopped saying that to them now. And also another thing that I've noticed that people were saying that I've kind of I wince when I hear it now, things are so politically chaotic and bleak at the moment and I think it's very common for people of mine and your generation to go yeah but the, you know the, the kids are amazing like in a couple of years time they're gonna save the world they're gonna be amazing like they're so organized they're so political another pressure we think we're giving them a compliment mm. but how awful to be saying to a 13 or 14 year old who's dealing with everything else that's happening and she doesn't even know what bra size she is or what she's gonna do with her hair and then on top of that we're hunger gamesing her mm. and going you're gonna save the world Katniss 
Like, no, they're kids. Let them grow up. We need to start saying, you know, as our generation, we really need to stop saying that. We really need to go, oh, hang on, we'll sort this out. Yeah. It was people of our generation that got you in this mess. Like, kind of, we will sort this out, kids. Don't worry. Mummy and daddy have got this. Mm. You don't have to go march for this. That makes me sad when, you know, kids are having to get that political and feeling that they're going to have to sort this mess out. No, we need to sort that out. Our words are so important, aren't they? Yes. I even feel it when I say, don't worry. Yeah. Because, you know, don't worry, it'll be okay. Sometimes... Is that a false sentence, you know, because sometimes you do have to worry. You have to learn that actually you can worry is, a, is an OK thing. You're allowed to be worried about stuff. You it's know, just, it's it's so tough because you don't want your child to be worried. But that's an emotion that they are going to feel. Totally. This is one of the biggest things I've learned in, um, in parenting and from going to lots of therapy stuff as well. Like kind of I'm very... Right, let's sort the problem out. Mm. Someone says, I'm sad. I'm immediately like, right, who have I got to kill? <laughs> what makeover do we need to do? Where? What country do we need to fly to now? And we're going to sort this out. Let's learn a foreign language. And then I'll show them. And learning that no action at all is actually the best thing at all. Mm. Just going, oh, my God, that's so hard. Oh, baby, it sounds like you've had a horrible day. Come and have a cup of tea. Come and tell me about it. Like, mm. kind of, and again, just being more passive I think particularly you know for women again in my generation kind of this huge birth to feminism we're very kind of do this do that get there mm. action alpha da, 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 da. and then you have to learn the hard way when you've got kids that like again you need to disappear out of the picture quite a lot you just need to be this again I, I just imagine that I'm Mrs Scoggins from Postman Pat a lot of the time now just kind of <laughs> a lovely old lady with a perm and some glasses going oh it sounds like it was a difficult day out there in the Dales come and tell your old mum who's never even left the house about it <laughs> quietly ignoring the last 30 years of my life but it, it's really important to not have an opinion a lot of the time and yeah. just be a lovely sympathetic kind of oh tell me about that or that sounds really hard just kind of mirroring back to them what they're saying and then often but then you know this is a complaint that women often make of their partners that you know you come in and you're really upset about something and what you really want them to do is just listen to you while you rant about it for 10 minutes and then you're just going you're fine but instead they're like right okay tell me about it you could do this you could do that I'm going to mansplain to you why you shouldn't be sad <laughs> and you're like no I just wanted to cry for 10 minutes and then feel better so it's funny that we identify that as a problem with men yeah. but then we will often use that tactics on our kids like yeah. you just need to sit there and don't have the answers is the answer very often mm. that's but, a good phrase I could, I could get merch out of that yeah you could you could yeah I'm t-shirt t-shirts yeah. yeah mugs flasks well, there we go yeah. but it's hard because you just want all the answers and you want to make everything better and you want them to not feel like you did when you were 13 yeah you know but that's part of the thing, isn't it? As, as Miley Cyrus said, it's not the mountain, it's the climb. It's like you think that because you've gone through all these experiences and you've got these answers that you can now get your kid to skip 10 levels yeah. of pain and you can give them the answer straight away. But they, you, you've got to go through it. They actually do need to have all those experiences. They are, and that's, that thing, that's the hardest thing about being a parent. Mm. You've got to sit and watch them be crushed. You've got to sit and watch their dreams being absolutely torpedoed. You've got to see them, I mean, thank God my kid's, so far have not had their hearts broken by a boy or a girl but the day that happens I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm quite militant about those things I'll literally be going through the kitchen drawers going well this person has to die (laughs) (laughs) Timmy it's great that you managed to get to 16 years of age but I'm afraid you made my daughter cry for three minutes so I'm going to have to take your head off I'm really sorry but have you ever seen Reservoir Dogs Timmy (laughs) (laughs) sit on the chair Timmy Oh, Those are nice ears. They're going. Stage you're going to be walking into, and they'll be sad for months. Yeah. They might be sad for years. It might be the defining moment of their life. That's the stuff that kills you. Like kind of, it's not. That's the really hard work. It's mm. realizing you can't parent. It's all the areas where you can't touch them, where you can't save them, where you can't get into their head and reprogram them. Yeah. And you've just got to sit there and be a witness. 
And if you're particularly if you're quite an active person and quite a can do person, the idea that you suddenly got to just turn into a witness, a loving, supportive, non judgmental mm. witness who doesn't come up with any solutions at all. And you just sit there for years just recording their pain and every so often saying to them, I saw that you were in pain. I saw that was really difficult. Yeah. You're doing so well. This is so hard for you. Well, and it feels like every woman or man that become a parent, they kind of want to almost right the, not the wrongs of their yes. upbringing, but kind of go, oh, I'm going to do it this way because I think this is going to be. So it feels like every time there is a restart. Yes. But you have to wait and see what the fallout of that is. Totally. And you are often parenting in retrospect so you're parenting your child how you would have been like to have been parented but like 30 years ago so yeah. for instance a recurrent thing in my generation is we all sit around and we go so how you got parented at the weekend is your dad would drive to the pub and he would leave you in the car outside uh, for about four hours and then he'd leave the radio on radio one on so that nice. was nice and then every so often he'd come outside and crank down the window a bit and he'd like post through a packet of crisps and a couple of cans <laughs> of coke just a little bit a far enough for you to have to stay in there yes yeah yeah, yeah. in case you came out like <laughs> yeah. animals and he'd just chuck in some crisps and a couple of you know if it was a really good day a couple of glass bottles of coke and then he'd go back in the pub for another three hours and you'd just amuse yourself in the car yeah so we're all parenting in reaction to that, like mm. kind of, we wouldn't, we're going to delight our children. We would never leave them to go and do something like that. It's constant delight and enchantment. We'll play with them all the time and play dates and all this kind of stuff. But now we're finding the correlation of that is that you know, that's called helicopter parenting now. And it's made children very over anxious that they never are left on their own to amuse themselves. Right. And then when that's in conjunction with the rise in social media and everyone having a phone, that's never, you know, you never have that boredom of like inventing a game in a locked car for four hours outside mm. the outside the Flying Dutchman on Warstones Drive. Like, kind of, you know, that you know means you can always amuse yourself because you just pick up a phone and you can just, you know, blankly scroll through other things. So mm. as a consequence, children are terrified. Teenagers are terrified of just sitting somewhere with nothing to do. They don't know what to do with themselves. You take their phone away, like it's literally like cold turkey. They, yeah. They're freaking out. They become very anxious. They can't sit with their own thoughts. Mm. They've never sat through boredom. They've never thought, what shall I do next? So... But, the, you know, this is the eternal merry-go-round of humanity, isn't it? Like, kind of, you know, <laughs> every generation is doomed to repeat the mistakes of its parents and then add some new ones of its own. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You just kind of go, so every moment, how much is this going to screw them up or is this not going to screw them up at all? Like, what is the, the side effect of this moment, of yes. me saying this to you right now? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the consequences of us talking about this now, because the thing is that, like, you know, if our children overheard this, you know, mind you, yours are too young to sort of probably bring you <laughs> up on it. But if for whatever reason my children hear this, they'll be furious. <laughs> they'll be furious <laughs> I haven't talked about them. But that's one of the binds about being a woman, because so yeah. many of the problems that you have are ones that you're just supposed to keep quiet mm. or keep within your community. The idea that you would talk publicly about these things. Every time a woman points out something that's difficult about being a woman or particularly about parenting, it's like, well, you've invaded your children's privacy. But it's like, well... If we never get to talk about these things, then we will never progress. So yeah. what's the balance there? Like kind of on, on the one hand, I want to be able to speak the truth. But on the other hand, I'm aware that I'm, you know, I'm invading my children's life to a certain extent. Mm. But it's also my life is so intertwined with them that yeah. there's no way that I can talk realistically about what it's like to be a mother without us finally having this conversation. And, and we have to it. talk mm. because that, that way we all know that we're not on our own with our thoughts and feelings. We can kind of help you. Sometimes I think helping each other isn't necessarily even... Helping each other is just hearing other people talk and go, yes. oh, I'm not the only one. Yeah, but again, it's that thing of what is normal. Mm. Like the minute that you find out, like on the last tour that I did, so I'm in front of 2,000 people, it's the first time I've said this and I'm taking a massive risk and I go, okay, am I the only person that when, as a lady who's had some children, you'll go and have a lovely bath, lovely bubbly bath, you relax, it'll be great, you get out of the bath, dry yourself <laughs> off, you get dressed, and then about 10 minutes later, suddenly, sploosh! <laughs> Smell of radox from your pants. Some water has just 
some bath water, maybe even with a little rubber duck floating in it. Like, where, where's that been for the last ten minutes? What is that? What is that? I've never seen that smoking about. And there was a pause for a minute after I said it, and then the whole like, room oh, went. God. Yeah, for thirty, for like four seconds, you're like, what? Okay, it was just me. That yeah. was literally just me. I am a freak. And then the whole room erupted. Everyone was like, yes, yes. And there's no word for that, and I've never seen that discussed anywhere. But every single woman in that room who'd had a child was like, "Yeah, I know what that is. What is that? What's the? Why would? Why would your body want to like use some kind of capillary action to suck up a small amount of bathwater, store it inside you for four minutes, and then re-deliver it back to the world?" At a point, you know, when you're downstairs like peeling some potatoes. The worst time that ever <laughs> happened to me, I was at a literary festival, and a car came to pick me up at eight o'clock in the morning to go live on the BBC breakfast show. And I'd had a bath and I got in the car and there was sort of like three, two, one to go on air. Oh, and no. as they get to two, it just goes sploosh. And I looked down at my beautiful <laughs> pale blue trouser suit. It's got this huge... No. Some, the bath water's come back. Hello. Luckily, I, because it was a literary festival and I am now middle class, I had a pashmina. Oh, and so I could just simply drape that over the crotch area and hide the problem. And that's what pashminas are generally for, I find. There's a reason why when you get to a certain age, you need to have a pashmina at all times or some kind of scarf. Yeah. Just to cover up terrible things that are happening <laughs> on your body. But is it because we don't talk about... Well, we don't talk about childbirth for a start, mm. really. No. And so there, I think there are lots of things with a female body that we don't talk about. No. So we, it's kind of like, oh, we don't need to see that. We don't need to know. But actually, the more it becomes funny when you share. Oh, God, absolutely. Because there's that, you know, the mechanism of comedy of something being funny is tension mm-hmm. and then release. Mm. So when you start talking about something that's taboo you've never done before, at the beginning of it, you're tense. You're like, where's this going to go? Yeah. And then the release is when you, you know, you sort of you deliver the joke. You kind of you go, here's the universal moment. We've all had this, haven't we? And then you can all laugh about it. And that just that simple physical mechanism when you're talking about being a woman is so good for rewiring your brain to feel good about your gender and your sex and your experiences like Mm. kind of you know if every conversation about childbirth you know I mean when I got pregnant for the first time this sort of wave of sort of dirty funny honest feminism had not happened to that point there were no funny books about being a woman or anything physical about it so the only books that you could read about having a baby were very serious and horribly medical and the book what to expect when you're expecting which would sort of like when chapter seven starts talking about vaginal tearing and like and not making a joke about it i think that was the point where i just had to stop reading that book because it's like <laughs> if we're not making you've made me very you know the, the mechanism of what is, is tension and release you made me very tense with your mention of vaginal tearing but there's, <laughs> there's no, no gag at the line. end of this like why there's no sharing moment here this is just horrible like you're torturing me and that's the problem unless you you know if you talk about the simple mechanics of a lot of the things that happen to you as a woman without humor it just sounds really unpleasant Mm. it's almost like torture porn and i'm very aware with teenage girls that generally we still don't make being an adult woman look like an attractive job yeah when boys and girls are young and you're still sort of vaguely genderless and stuff you're just sort of playing together and stuff and then there's a point where girls get their period for the first time because it's a big physical process that you go through like you get a period that's huge I keep saying to boys like you have to imagine that like you when you're at school and you're 11 years old and you're sitting in your in your classroom doing some maths and suddenly a huge amount of gravy appeared in your pants and you didn't know it was coming you don't want it there and you've got to deal with it secretly and it has a bit of a gravy smell you've got to deal with the smell you've got to go buy your special gravy absorbing sponges and like kind of and the gravy hurts Mm. for the three days of the month the four days of the month where the gravy's coming into your pants it really really hurts like kind of and you don't want it and you're still the same person you were yesterday you're just a confused kid going oh no this is horrible I think there's a presumption that women are 
innately built to be able to deal with these things better. Like we'll be kind of noble. Like when the blood comes, we're like, oh, well, as a woman, I'm strong and I'm wise and I expected this and this is all fine. And I will will deal with the laundry and the pain and the clots. And it's like, no, I'm exactly the same gimp as you are. If you were having to deal with this, Mm. the gravy in your pants, like I never imagine how freaked out you would be. That's exactly how I am. I have no better capabilities of getting blood out of polycotton. I have no better ability to deal with massive pain. I have no better ability to deal with the shame of having walking around and finding out you've got blood on the back of my clothes than you do. It's kind of this is all a huge surprise to me, and I'm very resentful about it. <laughs> and that's the thing I think maybe getting humour into into things like that early. Yes. So the humour around so so many teenage girls would find humour in the fact the positions that they find themselves in and and the situations are actually going you're not on your own totally there'd be so much comfort in that god absolutely and I wish that like my children have told me about sort of like their PSHE lessons that they have which is physical sexual education and Mm. health and stuff talky-talky vagina stuff it's amazing I had three kids (laughs) that's probably why you had three kids if you'd known where they were coming from you would have stopped that shit at one you would never have any you'd be happy now you'd still be in Antigua having a time of your life <laughs> but when they talk about those lessons and it's great that they have them but they still separate off the boys and the girls to have these conversations oh. it's like ding dong problem one yeah. like kind of how you should have sort of sex education and these things about so you know and physical health education and stuff is boys and girls asking each other questions I think I think you should start off with boys saying to girls what's it like to have a period mm. and get girls to explain it because the, weird, the weirdness of it going through you know a teacher explaining it separately to boys and girls what's happening yeah, that's the start of men, you know, being women's things and men's things. It's like women have to keep these secret from the men. Why? We're going to end up sharing beds with each other. Like, kind of like, you know, men are going to learn about periods at some point in their their sexual life. Like, kind of like, why not now at 11, rather than suddenly being surprised by something horrible that's happened when they're 25 in bed with a woman who's come on her period halfway through shag. Like, kind of, let's start talking about it now. Mm. And this separation between boys and girls, like, kind of the saddest thing that I think, and there's so many brilliant things about the internet, and I think it will be a, a net benefit to humanity in the end, but... The rise of online pornography and the fact that over 90% of teenage boys and girls get their sexual education from pornography is the thing that breaks my heart because the thing that is not told to kids when they look at pornography is that that isn't sex. Mm. That is some people at work. The whole trend now of having no pubic hair for girls and everyone's going, why is that happening? Like, and Why is that? It's just simply to make the cinematography of pornography more effective. That's where it started. Porn stars would wax everything. Mm. And now because that's where 90% of people get their sexual information from, you just think, well, that's what genitals must look like and that's why it's all removed. And it's everybody's choice and some people may prefer it and some people may not and I've got no dog in the game. But it annoys me that the act of having genitals for a woman now costs you money. Yeah. Like, to be normal, you have to go through a regular process that's painful and costs you a huge amount of money. And that means you have to now schedule, like you're in the Matrix, when you're next likely to be naked in front of someone. You know, we're having to plan what our genitals are going to look like on Friday, on Tuesday. <laughs> it just, you know, it, it, the, the craziness that women feel like a massive to-do list every yeah. day is so full of these things that we have to consider. And, like, you know, there are plenty of things that men have to worry about. But the bottom line is that most women get out of bed and immediately go, oh, I f- this is a fat day. Okay, if it's a fat day, then I can only wear half this stuff in the wardrobe. And the meeting that I've got to do to today, I'll need to have, like, you know, I need to have, make my hair look smart, but then I'm going to a party afterwards, I need to put another pair of shoes in the bag. 
have, have I, oh, that curtain pole's still not mended. I haven't fleed the cat. I need to do my pelvic floor exercises. We need to book a holiday. She wants a pat lunch today. I haven't got spam. I need to go and look in the freezer. So we've got huge to-do list. Men get up, go, my name's Simon, and I'm going to put on some trousers. <laughs> and they get out of bed and get on with their day. Like, it's not, it's not this huge list of unseen emotional labour that women are constantly working their way through. Oh, is it? I think that though, gets you ready for motherhood. Yes. That organisation. Because I think, like, using that before, for me, is just key to but getting that's everyone. Where, but that's why I get angry now. <laughs> I Sorry. Know, I know. But because, because we've been doing that for yeah. all of our lives and that you get that thing now where, you know, and this is not men being rubbish or, you know, not wanting to join in, but because we're so used to multitasking, we know that you can hold a baby, breastfeed it, put a tablet in a dishwasher, put it on whilst counselling someone through a nervous breakdown on a phone. Yeah. Okay, and probably doing something with our feet as well. Like, <laughs> literally multitasking. But, like, because men aren't used to doing that, as soon as they've got a baby, if you give a man a baby to look after a newborn baby, He'll just sit there looking after the baby all yes, day. Nothing yes, else will get done. Yes, Because I know. he's never had to multitask. And then so then it's like, <laughs> so now you're locked into it. Because now you are the person in charge of the house. You're doing everything. And I'm going to literally go home tonight after recording this and the Do house everything. will be... Yeah. That's what I find difficult. You can't suddenly go, come on. I've thought about it. I think if I pretend to fall down the stairs I'm going to wait till <laughs> just before they come into the house and then I'm going to arrange myself in a higgledy-piggledy pile at the bottom of the stairs like I've fallen down and I'm just going to lie there and go sorry I think I might be paralysed for about two weeks uh, so if you guys all want to take over and see what it's like to be me for two weeks while I just lie in bed and watch this box set of flea bag and drink Horlicks I mean in a movie that's what you do isn't it Yeah. the mum would suddenly it'd be like working girl you'd be Sigourney Weaver you'd have your arms and legs in a cast <laughs> and your, your husband and your children would have to be Melanie Griffiths and they'd learn how to, to run that office in your absence. So, uh... But don't you find it's, for me, when I am away, and say I haven't done organising, mm. you know, on the rare occasion, and I come back and everything's fine. That really <gasps> Hurts irritates you as well. me. Yeah, because I'm like, I didn't organise. Yes. And you're still okay. Yes. Where's your organisation? I know. Because so much of your worth as a woman is still in dealing with all this stuff. Yeah. So if other people can do with it, you're like, well, what... Should I have been a greater artist then? Like, <laughs> should I have Why done the oil painting so yeah, much? Totally. The recurrent thing is that I remember my brother just going, uh, when he started dating when he was about 19, and he's sort of coming to my house and shaking his head, going, I just don't understand women. Like, I don't, you just keep doing really weird things like moisturising your elbows and hoovering the curtains. And to him, all of female behaviour just seemed... Why would you moisturise an elbow? Why would you hoover a curtain? Of course, as women, we know exactly why you would moisturise an elbow or hoover a curtain. Like, that's a dry area with no sebum. And curtains will get dusty and they need to be hoovered. But, like, kind of, from a very early age, you know, women's magazines, everything to, everything you read about being a woman from a very early age is about learning all these things. Yeah. You should know how to make something out of leftovers. You should know how to dress day to night. You should know how to do your stomach crunches. You should know how to give the perfect blowjob. You should be, you know, know how to look after a baby. You should have all these aspirations. And then if you look at the stuff, it's really weird. If you look at the stuff that men are reading at that age, it's like... Look at the watch. <laughs> Look at the car. Like, kind of like... Yeah. It, and you go through these phases of going, is it better or worse to be a man or a woman? Because, yeah. like, on the one hand, you get to enjoy your life more if you're a man. But, but on the also, other it's, hand, but I find it all very therapeutic. Mm. But that's just because we've had so much stuff put on us. So when that is all being sorted out, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't work out whether it's better to be... To, for the world to have the insanely high expectations that it does have of women. Mm. So it means you are constantly learning all of these skills and stuff or whether it's better to be a man where it is more like kind of like, well, why not just get away with just doing what you want and being happy and having fun and like kind of bare minimum? And I think the point where it starts to intersize and I get worried about it is that men, if men are brought up to not 
learn to deal with their emotions and not do all these things, men can often confuse want with need mm. in a relationship. So that's where you see toxic relationships with men and women where a man needs that woman because otherwise he can't have emotions. Like kind of she's the one that's going to deal with his emotions. She's the one that can bring it out of him. She's the one that understands him. She's the one that can look after him. Yeah. And men shouldn't need to be looked after and women shouldn't want to look after. We, you know, we it's, let's say equality thing again. Yeah. Like kind of, this is why. But I do sometimes wish that I, there was a women's magazine that was just like, hey, look at this car. <laughs> look at this lovely watch. Here are some wines. That's the end. That's all you need to do. Never need to worry That's about anything else again. Yeah. It would never, if you talk to a man about, you know, if you said to a man, have you got scaly dry skin on your upper arms? They'd look at you like you're insane. They'd be like, what? Why would I have even have looked? It's an arm. Women are like, yeah, I know there are four different kinds. And here are 10 different ways you can get rid of the scaly dry skin on your upper arm. So at the end of every podcast, yes. I get you to finish three sentences. <gasps> Very simple. I can do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being a mum means. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Brilliant sound. Ah, <laughs> oh, being a mum means. I was going to say always being wrong, but like kind of, but I think in a good way, I think it is just allowing yourself to be wrong. I think you think it's about being right, yeah. but you've got to allow yourself to be wrong or at least not knowing. You have to pretend to be surprised when they come up with solutions. Like, oh, I never thought of that. Yes, I did. (laughs) Minute one of you talking about your problem, I knew exactly what the answer was, but I had to let you work it out because I'm wise. That's really interesting because you have to let them get there themselves. You really do, and it's agonising. Since being a mum, I... Have finally known where my body is and respected it. For all of my teenage years and my early 20s, I was very overweight, I was very unfit, and if you'd asked me where my body was, I would have said, about seven miles away? I didn't really know where it was. And then giving birth, first time, however agonising and awful it was, it meant that I finally came into my body and knew where I was. I was in the place where all the pain was. And when I, when the baby finally came out, I, was, I had respect for my body for the first time. I was just patting it, going, well done, like it was a scared horse, going, yeah. well done, mate, well done, I like you. We should talk more often. Did motherhood change you? Yeah. I'd learnt to be less spectacular. Uh, I always thought you had to be like, papa. And now I realise it's just about sitting there quietly, getting the stuff done, not getting in people's way. And physically, it's made me finally respect and love my body and just want to hang out with it a bit more because it's like, mate, you went through some stuff there. I'm going to... I owe you a pint. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, I'm happy when... I'm happy when we're all on the sofa, the dog included, and my husband and both my daughters watching RuPaul's Drag Race. Amazing. (laughs) Best thing in the world. That's perfect happiness. Men pretending to be women and all of us watching. It's perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yay!